From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. There are some topics that are easy to introduce to our PreserveCast listeners. Today's episode is not one of those, but it's a topic we feel compelled to cover and explore. Among his many responsibilities and positions, today's guest, Dr. David Fakunle, is currently serving as the chair of the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the first state body in the United States dedicated to chronicling and bringing justice to racial terror lynchings. It's a dark and painful chapter in our history, but a history which we'll confront and discuss on this week's PreserveCast with a leader dealing with the legacy of lynchings and the effort to bring justice to those who were denied it. Hey, this is Nick Redding, the host of PreserveCast, and before today's episode, I want to ask you to consider making a quick donation to support the program. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and during difficult times like these, every dollar helps. Your support keeps us on the air, making the case for the value, relevance, and importance of history in our lives, and we all greatly appreciate it. To make a donation, you can visit PreserveCast.org and hit the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thanks for all your help, and keep on preserving. Now, let's get back to the episode. Dr. David Fakunle is a self-described mercenary for change, willing to employ any talent and occupy any space to elevate anyone who feels divested from their truest self, particularly people of color. David earned a PhD from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where he is currently associate faculty in the mental health department. David's research interests include stressors within the built environment, manifestations of institutional racism in society, and the utilization of arts and culture to strengthen health, equity, and ultimately, liberation. As an artist, David has utilized African storytelling, drumming, vocal, and theater performance in the proclamation of truth for over 20 years. His affiliations include the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum, the National Association of Black Storytellers, and others. David is co-founder and CEO of Discover Me, Recover Me, an organization that empowers narrative for personal and organizational growth through the African oral tradition. He also serves as the chair of the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're very pleased to have Dr. David Fakunle, who is currently serving as the chair of the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And we're going to be talking with him um, about that important work and uh, the work that he does in, in communities all across the state. Um, and so it's such a pleasure to have you here to talk about this really challenging but critically important topic. Um you you talk about in your bio and you describe yourself as a mercenary for change, which is a really, I think, like a really powerful and beautiful statement. So we always like to know before we start talking to people about kind of their background. So where did you grow up and, and what lit this fire within you? And I'm curious as a young person, you know, what kind of passions drove you and, and brought you to where you are today? Well, first off, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure and an honor to have these opportunities just to tell my story. So my story began and continues and likely will end in Baltimore. Uh, that is my hometown. That is where I live. And I see no reason I should leave. My journey is, is one of the influence of community 
and the influence of people seeing something in me that I just couldn't see in myself because I was too young or certainly didn't have just the, the perspective to appreciate my capabilities. Uh, it began with my parents, of course, uh, two loving parents who emphasized education and, and not just academic attainment, but really full knowledge and full understanding. So knowledge of self as a person of African descent, uh, being able to enjoy all aspects of life. So athletically, uh, artistically, culturally, uh, socially, I had those opportunities. So opportunity is gonna be a, a, a word that comes up very often in my conversations because it really does define a lot of my life so far have been opportunities. What was the spark? I, I can't say there was ever a spark. It was, it was just, this was the path that I was meant to take. Um, you know, we talk about preservation, I mean, preservation of history. Well, my history is eternally intertwined with the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum. So my godparents, Dr. Joanne Martin and the late Dr. Elba Martin founded that museum. My mother was a part of the creation of that museum. She used to hold the wax figures uh, that the doctors Martin had at her home when it was just a traveling exhibition. So knowledge of self as a black person and, and preservation of history has been my life. I've known nothing else. And because of my exposure at the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum, I knew what it meant to be uh, a black person in this country and a black person in this world. Uh, good, bad, ugly, beautiful, and everything in between. Uh, and that includes lynching as well, which we'll get to later, obviously. And because of the places that I've been able to navigate, uh, predominantly white spaces, academically and scientifically, I've been able to bring my perspective and my story as a black person to those spaces and to show just by my mere existence, A, that it is possible for a black person to be in these spaces, and two, that we can bring something that adds to our understanding of this world and the people in it. So that is why I call myself a mercenary. Well, first and foremost, I do like to get paid for what I do. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be money. Uh, you can pay me either in money or relationships. They're both valuable to me. And, and relationships have really gotten me to where I am uh, more than money because I am not wealthy by any means. Um, and it's all about change. It's all about growth and elevation. I have grown as a person in my 33 years so far. I pray that I continue to grow in however many years I have left. And this world has changed right along with me. And I don't want that to end anytime soon. So anything that I can do to contribute to the growth and evolution of this world and the people within it, I am willing to do that. Well, I think that's like a perfect sort of segue there talking about what you can do for the growth of this world and understanding and you talk about opportunities. Um, Obviously, we're talking with you because you're you're currently serving as the as the chair of this important commission, um, which you know we mentioned is the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and I I think maybe before we get into how that commission is working and what the work itself is, I think it's really important to define terms um, with really such a painful topic, especially since we have listeners. We do have listeners all across the world, and some may be unfamiliar with this chapter in American history, or they may be unfamiliar even with the terms. So what is, I mean, in the most basic terms, what is a lynching? And I'm curious if, like, where did that term come from? So a lynching uh, at its most basic level is 
an extrajudicial killing or a, a killing without law or killing without justice. It's just done because a group of people decided that this is what action needs to be taken outside of the legal system. So it's an extrajudicial killing. Now, in terms of where it originated, I had to look this up myself. So it's actually unclear where the term lynching came from, but most people attribute the term to two gentlemen uh, who both lived in Virginia during the 1780s in the U.S. Uh, with the last name Lynch. Uh, most people are familiar with William Lynch or Willie Lynch, um, but there's also a gentleman by the name of Charles Lynch. Uh, so they are both attributed to this uh, idea of punishment uh, without like trial, punishment without trial or punishment without law, which uh, some research has shown was in at least some way attuned to uh, enslaved Africans during that time in the U.S. So if there was some form of, of justice, and I use quotations, although people can't see me, form of justice that needed to be carried out and the legal system was taken too long, those actions can be taken into the hands of the people. So within the confines of uh, the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we actually had to define racial terror lynching. So there's a difference. So lynchings could happen to anybody, uh, by anybody, to anybody, by anybody. So uh, black people were lynched by black people, white people were lynched by white people and so forth and so forth. For our definition, our operational definition, a racial terror lynching was that same killing, extrajudicial killing of a black person, African-American by a white mob uh, for the preservation of white supremacy and white power and was done to serve as intimidation for the purposes of preserving uh, white supremacy and white power. Right. And which is, I mean, this is some, this is weighty stuff and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're wading into it on a regular basis. And I think for people listening, this is, this is tough to hear, but I mean, I also think it's a really, I mean, the way you define it is, is I guess easy to understand for as difficult as this is extrajudicial. So without really any, any thought for justice, just a group of people and, and the way that you guys are defining this, um, obviously is, is this racially motivated way. Um, I'm curious when it comes to that, like looking at it that way, um, because as you said, I mean, anybody, I guess, can be extrajudicially lynched, um, but you guys, or not you guys, but the commission, I should say, is looking at it from the perspective of of racial terror. How many of those types of lynchings, do we have any sense for how many of those happen nationally and how many we think happen in Maryland? Yes, we do. So one thing that I do want to add is, is although our definition does include kind of the uh, denotation of a lynching which is extrajudicial, a lot of times the legal system and the judiciary system were aware that these things were going on. So a lot of times they kind of turned their heads away from it, knowing full well that it was going on. So I think that's an important context to include as well when we think about racial terror. Technically, it is outside of the law but the law knew what was going on. Uh, as to the number of, of lynchings that have occurred in the United States, we'll, we'll never know the full amount. I, I think that's just a reality of the situation. Uh, um, due to the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson, uh, for people who are aware of his organization, uh, they did a study that was able to officially confirm over 4,400 lynchings, uh, racial terror lynchings in the United States. Within that, at the time, this was 2015, they were able to confirm 28 in the state of Maryland. Now, independent work uh, outside of the EJI done through Maryland State Archives, uh, actually before EJI took on their initiative to chronicle racial terror lynching, found about 40. 
this was reconfirmed through another uh, research study done out of Bowie State University, uh, which confirmed the same 40, and actually that's grown to 42 confirmed racial terror lynchings uh, that occurred in Maryland between 1854 and 1933. And 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 it's I guess it's uh, I don't know you can call it interesting, but you say 1854, which is sort of I mean, obviously, slavery still exists, and it exists in Maryland until really 1864 when the Constitution changes. But it's something that it it seems like it's it starts as slavery begins to wane. It's not something that happens, and so I mean, to your point about how this is used to intimidate—not just your point, but the the reality that this is used as an intimidation tool. I guess is that why we see it kind of parallel with that, it, and does it pick up after slavery ends? Is that really the the apex of it? So I think the the narrative around racial terror lynchings is that it was recognized as a form of intimidation even during the time of enslavement. So yes, it does pick up after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, the end of the Civil War, because this is the uh, era of Reconstruction. So I tell people Reconstruction was probably the only time in the history of this country where black folks were separate but equal and started to actually build their own institutions. And of course, it drew the ire of white America. Uh, so what happened was they used terror. So the Ku Klux Klan grew out of Reconstruction. Uh, the rise in racial terror lynchings happened because of Reconstruction. They literally and figuratively destroy black America as it's trying to get up off of its feet and then change the laws to make sure that it can't be rebuilt again. So that's where you really see the uptick uh, in racial terror lynchings is right out of reconstruction. And that certainly continues uh, from a national standpoint through the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. So although the last confirmed lynching in Maryland was 1933, we know that nationally this went on through the 60s. And even today, we have those instances where there are cases of lynchings uh, in the United States. So. Let me ask you this, you know, sources, I, I looked a little bit at this and some of the things that the NAACP has put out, they, it suggests that it was disproportionately young black men. So why? I mean, it, it could be any person with, with black skin, but it seems like it was disproportionately young black men. What made them so, I guess, threatened or susceptible to this form of, of cruel injustice? So young black men both then and now, and that's important to, to say, both then and now really are the embodiment of this lie of Black inferiority. And that has been the case, honestly, since 1619. So Black men were considered animals uh, then, only good for what products, what crops they could help cultivate. Uh, when that was no longer a possibility because the laws changed, then came further vilification and, and really uh, demonification of black men. So this kind of you know kind of intersects with my other work, which is public health. And I came up as a drug epidemiologist. And, and one of the things that I learned is that with a lot of the laws around illicit drugs and just those drugs that are considered illicit, much of the mo momentum uh, for the legislation that made them illicit was connected with a racial group. For cocaine, that was black men. So it was told you know, to, to white Americans, cocaine turns black men into uh, rapists of white women in particular. 
And that was more than enough to say, okay, cocaine is now illicit. So black men have always been used as kind of the marker for something that is evil, something that is illicit, something that is unbecoming, amoral, you know, choose any synonym that you want. And that continues today. So that is why, you know, most victims of racial terror lynchings were black men, because to white people in the U.S., they were the enemy. They were the personification of evil. And again, we still see it today. Ooh, that, this is it's it's tough to hear, but it but it's uh, it's so important, and and the work that you're doing is so important. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. So, for listeners outside of Maryland, or perhaps even this this country, can you talk about the commission itself, like how it came to be, and and who worked to see it established? I think that this could be like important background for people who are listening from other states, particularly southern states, um, places where you know there are a number of lynchings um, or a history of them um, who maybe are contemplating establishment of a similar commission or thinking about, about doing something like this. How did this all kind of come together? And, and maybe by, by extension, how did you get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly the Equal Justice Initiative and their elevation of the narrative helped. Uh, that brought on the action of creating the Maryland Lynching Memorial Project, which is uh, an organization that again, was looking to chronicle and memorialize lynchings that occurred in the state of Maryland. There are local initiatives that have been doing this work for years, and it's always important to recognize those local coalitions and counties all across the state of Maryland. This uh, groundswell of support and and really uh, investigation into racial terror lynchings in the past 10, 15 years uh, eventually made its way to uh, the Maryland General Assembly. So Delegate Joseline Pena-Melnick, uh, out of Prince George's County, uh, she took up uh, the bill. So it helped to champion the bill that created the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that was passed uh, unanimously. And I always love to say that unanimously, every single one said yes to this uh, through the Maryland General Assembly in 2019. And we had our first official meeting in August of last year, August 2019. So we're a little over a year old. Uh, how I got involved. So through the law, 14 institutions had to be represented on this commission. Uh, one of those institutions was the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum. So my godmother, uh, Dr. Joanne Martin, is perpetually busy. I don't know how she ever sleeps or when she ever sleeps. Uh, so this is one of those opportunities that she just didn't have the bandwidth to do. Uh, so she asked me, would I be able to represent the museum? And I said, absolutely. I never say no to her. I, I am e eternally indebted to her and my, my late godfather for who I am as a person. So pretty much if they ask me to do something, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, so I said yes. Uh, so I went to the very first meeting in August of 2019, you know, got introduced to the other commissioners at the time, introduced to Delegate Pena Melnick, who I had met previously, and just started to lay the initial groundwork. And part of that initial groundwork was to select an interim chair. I kid you not, nobody was raising their hand for like a good five minutes. So I start looking around. I kind of get like butterflies in my stomach because I think part of my caution is saying, dude, just raise your hand, do it. Um, one of the, the staff members uh, from the Office of the Attorney General, she, she kind of notices me kind of like fiddling a little bit. She says, do it, do it. Like she's, she's kind of egging me on. And I said, you know what, fine. I raised my hand and I said, I'll be the interim chair. So that's how it happened. It was no elaborate, you know, election. No, I was the only one that said, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> um, and after that, 
it, it, it started to hit me how important it was for this commission, the first of its kind uh, in the United States to be led by a young black man. But just the reasons I mentioned previously. Right. People like me were the typical victims of this heinous crime. So how apropos that, you know, a commission led to chronicle and, and bring some semblance of justice to this heinous crime looks like the typical victim of it. I, I think that's as powerful a statement as anything uh, will do. And, and we certainly mean to make more powerful statements, but even off the off the very beginning, we did that with with me raising my hand to be chair. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a, for as difficult as all of this is, it is powerful to see someone like you leading it, right? I mean, it's a, it's a statement about, I mean, we have a long way to go, no question, but it is a state, I guess it is a statement about how at least we have, we've made this, this, this jump. And I, I, I like to think that those who were victims of that would look at this and be, be proud of you and proud of the fact that you're leading this and that there's someone who looks like them that's, representing all of this. I am curious too. I didn't, I mean, you know, I, I normally give PreserveCast um, guests some questions in advance so that we can kind of set the table. And I didn't ask you this one, but are you, do you know if you're related to anyone who was lynched? Are you a descendant or, an, or a relation to anyone? I do not know. Um, okay. So c- certainly I don't think I'm connected to any, any of the victims of lynching in Maryland. I am not sure if I'm connected to a lynching victim. Uh, it would not surprise me. And, and hopefully when I do have some bandwidth at some time, I can, you know, research that myself. But to my recollection, I, I am not a descendant of a lynching a victim. Right. Although when you say, you know, 4,400 lynchings, racial terror lynchings in the United States, you know, you'd probably be hard pressed to find an African-American person who isn't somehow related or would have been connected to, right? I mean, it's, exactly. it's just too many. Exactly. And, and I think we're all connected just by obviously what it was meant to do. Right. It was meant to intimidate every single one of us. So whether we saw it in the newspaper, whether, you know, we're viewing it online, even, you know, 50, 60 years actually after it actually occurred, it still serves the intent to intimidate and to show what can happen to you if you step out of the lines that this structure of white supremacy and white power has created for you. So, yeah, you know, I, I don't have to be, you know, related to a victim of lynching. It, it has served its purpose for me uh, to know that it's an intimidating act, but it does not intimidate me. Not anymore, at least. I, ha- I had my, my time to process just the, the absolute horror of the act. So I recognize it for what it is and am just grateful to be in a position to uh, bring justice to it. Well, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that justice in particular and talk about the work of the commission and what you guys are working on and and what will come out of this. And we'll do that after we take a quick break right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. 
This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Rita C. Davidson, who had a remarkable career as a lawyer and judge, read by Shante Daniels, Executive Director of the Baltimore National Heritage Area. Judge Rita C. Davidson made legal history, speaking her mind for families all the way up the legal ladder of her appointments. After she earned degrees from Goucher College and Yale Law School, she began to practice law in Montgomery County and became involved in local politics. Then in 1970, Davidson achieved the first of a number of firsts when she was appointed to the cabinet of the Maryland governor. Governor Marvin Mandel named her head of the Department of Employment and Social Services, now the Department of Human Resources. According to the Washington Post, she was the most controversial and outspoken member of the governor's cabinet, fighting for higher welfare payments for the poor and larger budgets for what she considered to be underfunded welfare agencies. The governor then selected her to Maryland's second highest court in 1972, making her the first woman to serve in the court's special appeals, fulfilling her childhood dream to be a judge. In 1979, Davidson was appointed to the Maryland Court of Appeals, the first woman in the 200-year history of the state's highest court. The governor said that her gender was not a controlling factor and that she was simply unsurpassed among the candidates in terms of scholarship, intellectual capacity, and breadth of experience. At that time, she said at her appointment, that it was a singular honor and somewhat awesome experience to contemplate being the first woman on the highest court in my state. Her colleagues said that she repeatedly demonstrated that she was not only a person of large intellect, but one of great compassion. Rita often sometimes marched to the beat of a different drum, her own. Davidson died at the early age of 56 in 1984. Davidson earned admission into the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame in 1985. Through her work, Judge Rita C. Davidson established beyond a doubt through her writing and by her life that she was philosophically a liberal, physically courageous, and mentally persistent. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast today. We uh, again are joined by Dr. David Fakunle, uh, and we are talking with him about his work as the chair of the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Before we took our break, um, we were talking about how the commission came to be, the work that it's doing, how he became chair, and really the powerful symbolic statement it is, as, as he suggested, and as we certainly agree with, that um, you know a young African American male is leading this commission. Um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about like what the commission is actually working to accomplish. So I know that there's going to be a report and recommendations, and I'm curious what that might include and when we may see that. So the interim report, we are actually working on it as we speak. We should have it finalized, I would say even today or certainly by the end of the weekend. So we plan to give that to the state of Maryland by next week at the latest. Uh, we are requesting an extension for the commission, uh, due in part to COVID-19, but even before COVID-19 hit, we realized that just the breadth of the work was too much for us to get done in two years. You know, so we came together in uh, 2019, 
We're supposed to be done by 2021. We'd get a lot done, but not nearly enough to really capture the totality of the narrative. So we are requesting uh, a two-year extension, I believe. So we want to have until the end of 2023 uh, to do our work. So what we are charged to do as a commission is to chronicle uh, the, the 40 plus confirmed lynchings that happened in this racial terror lynchings that happened in the state of Maryland, uh, again, between 1854 and 1933. One of the things that we recognize is that a lot of that chronicling has already happened. So one thing that we're not going to do is recreate the wheel. We are not going to redo the work that we know local initiatives, uh, local coalitions, local historians and preservationists have been doing for years. That is not the point. Uh, the point is really to elevate the story of racial terror lynchings in Maryland. So we, we know uh, that a lot of Marylanders just kind of have this interesting dynamic about the state. You know, is it, is it Northern? Is it Southern? Is it something in between? It's a Southern state. Let's keep it, let's just be very honest. It's the South. <laughs> you know, it may not be the deep South, but it's the South. And racial terror lynchings happen here. Uh, so let's get that out the way. And, and I think that's part of what we want to make sure people know. Yes, Maryland is not immune to white supremacy, white power, institutional racism. It happened here. Unfortunately, a lot of things that we see from a national standpoint when it comes to those three things, got its origination in Maryland. So not racial terror lynchings, but other things as well. So for us, it is about drawing the connection um, as much as it's about chronicling racial terror lynchings and conducting um, hearings, which we will do hopefully in 2021, uh, around the state to give members of, of various communities the opportunity to tell their story. So we know that as, as tough and as difficult and as traumatizing an experience as racial terror lynchings are, and I have to say are, we know that those stories are usually not spoken outside of people's homes or out of uh, private settings, but they were spoken. So people know these stories, even if they are generations uh, separated from the actual act. We want to capture those stories of how the lynchings, uh, even in that acute moment, but then also the legacy and the ramifications of those lynchings affected the communities in which it occurred. Whether it is uh, Black people in the community, white people in the community, or anyone in between, these lynchings had an effect, and we need to know what those effects are. Also, and this is, you know, David, the storyteller talking, I know how important it is for people to tell their story in order to heal. Usually the first step in the healing process is to tell the story. And there are a lot of people who have never had a chance to tell this story out loud outside of the comfort of their homes or the comfort of people that they trust. This is gonna be a public space for people to tell their stories and to begin that healing process. So when we think about reconciliation, and I just heard this maybe a couple of weeks ago and it kind of blew my mind and, and I wanna operate under this kind of perspective now, it's about healing and justice. That leads to the reconciliation. So in order for people to heal, we have to hear their stories. And, and it's not just the stories of, uh, descendants of victims. I and the commission want to hear from descendants of perpetrators and descendants of spectators. And it's not about condoning their actions because there's nothing to condone. It's a heinous act, an act against humanity. There's no doubt about it. But we know that they were not immune to the effects of a racial terror lynching. Right. Uh, there was a, a documentary that I saw um, earlier this year, and it, earlier this year feels like eight years ago, 
um, <laughs> called Always in Season. And it was about the suspected lynching of a young black kid in North Carolina. And part of the documentary um, focused on the reenactment of a lynching that happened in another state. I forget the state. And it included the daughter of a white man who was part of the Ku Klux Klan, like was a prominent member of the Ku Klux Klan. So this is his daughter who is reenacting uh, these lynchings for the preservation and, and the awareness of these acts of terrorism, of racial terrorism. So we know that there are people out there who know these stories, whose families may have been involved in these heinous acts, but believe in justice and believe that what their ancestors did was an injustice and want to be on the right side of history. So we make it abundantly clear that we want to hear from you. This is not about prosecution. We can't do that, first and foremost. It, it is about, again, knowing the totality of the story and giving everyone the opportunity to heal. Because something as heinous as a racial terror lynching, and you know, if anyone hasn't looked up pictures of lynching, content warning, it's hard yeah. uh, to look at them. But let that be an idea of just how inhumane people can be when they don't see you as human. They will do things like that or can do things like that to you. So you can't tell me that it doesn't affect everyone involved in some form or fashion. And those are the stories that we want to capture as part of the hearings. And then when it comes to the recommendations, well, how do we bring healing and justice to the entire state? So not just the descendants of people involved in the lynchings and the communities in which it happened, but we know that this is just one aspect, a very visceral, very carnal aspect of white supremacy and white power, but just one aspect. So we know this happens in many different forms today. How do we bring healing and justice to not just the past, but the present to make sure that this is not a part of our future? So our recommendations are going to reflect that as well. Do you have any any that you can share? I'm curious, I mean, because that that's really great. It's it's very interesting, and I think mm-hmm. it's really powerful. And I also think it's really interesting too that you talked about the perpetrators and the descendants of perpetrators. Because you know, I, I don't know if if everyone who heard that there would be this commission would recognize that piece. And I think that's powerful, and I think that's really really bold. Um, but I'm curious, what kind of are are is there an example of a recommendation that you could share? Yes. So I think one of the, the low-hanging fruits for us is to make sure that this is part of the educational system. So when it, becomes, you know, when it comes to knowing this aspect of Maryland history, this needs to be in the curriculum. And, and certainly we can recommend it for the public school system, but we want private institutions, if, if they want to be a part of this process, to consider teaching the history of racial terror lynchings in Maryland as a part of their curriculum as well. If we're talking pie in the sky, you know, like shooting for the moon, reparations. Reparations is definitely a recommendation that we want to make. Uh, we, we know that the wealth imbalance in this country is in large part due to white supremacy and white power. It is unavoidable. So, you know, you'll see it on the news all the time uh, about the, the wealth gap when you break it down by race. It's real. Uh, if we want to start to undo some of the long-term effects of this system of oppression, that's got to be one of the ways that we do it. We have to literally reallocate the wealth. And it wouldn't be fun for a lot of people. It would be controversial to say the least. Um, but it's absolutely necessary. And, and I think as time goes on, and we have these moments uh, of which 2020 is a big moment for a lot of people in their lives, 
they are realizing that these troops are inevitable and, and cannot be uh, denied. So we have to do something about it if we truly want to fix the injustices that we are seeing all around us. Well, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to to reading the report, as I imagine a lot of people listening are and, and seeing this, because as you mentioned, um, this is the first commission of its kind in the country. So this is sort of setting the stage, and I imagine more will follow. Um, you know, we've talked to, and you've mentioned and brought up a couple times preservation community. I'm curious how, and I say we because you know we're a preservation group, but but others like us around the country or here in the state. How do we support the work that you're doing? So sh- should we preserve, recognize, mark these sites? And and who is the who should be the arbiter on that? You know, so for preservation groups listening or people who are interested and want to be allies of this work, how how do we address that legacy in the physical sense where, where the the places where it happened? Are you guys grappling with that or thinking that through and and how can we be good allies of this? So we are um, and I would say we as a commission are trying to be good allies with the local coalitions that have been doing this work even before our creation. So we're right along with you all about making sure that we are good stewards and, and leveraging our power, uh, quite honestly, to elevate the story and the work that they've been doing. When it comes to memorializing, that's been done. So again, Equal Justice Initiative, uh, if you've ever gone to their museum in Montgomery, Alabama, I had the chance to do that uh, November of last year. It was it was incredible, uh, as many people have said. Uh, the local coalitions, Merrill um, Lynch Memorial Project, they've had ceremonies where they have collected soil from the sites where racial terror lynchings have occurred. One of the things that I said that I want us as a commission to do, and certainly do it in partnership with anyone who wants to join us, if you've ever been to, uh, I always forget the official title of the museum, uh, but I just call it the Lynching Museum um, in Montgomery, Alabama all of the monuments that they have to all the lynchings that occurred in the U.S., they have duplicates also located on the grounds. And uh, I took a look at the duplicates because I was surprised that they had duplicates. And they said, we want these to be at the sites of where the lynchings occurred across the country. And I said, right then and there, and this was after I became interim chair and the, and the commission started to kick off, I said, I want the monuments for Maryland to be gone within We'll say, let's be realistic. So by the time we are done, hopefully in 2023, when people come to that museum in Montgomery, Alabama, and they get to the part of the museum where they're looking at the duplicates, they will look at the state of Maryland and see that those monuments are gone. Because the state of Maryland recognized the sins that it allowed to be committed on its land, being racial terror lynching, and will make sure that no one who visits these places in the state of Maryland will ever forget. So what I would say is, you know, I don't know how much it would cost to get those monuments. Those things are pretty heavy and pretty big, but, but I, I want us, and I mean us as a state, us uh, who are committed to the preservation of history, the good, the bad, and the ugly of that history to make sure that those monuments are gone and to make sure that they are placed all across the state of Maryland where these lynchings occur. Now, most of them are usually organized by county. So, you know, we can decide what county they go in or, or, or where it happens. But what I would suggest is that it happens on the courthouse lawn. And that's a reference to Sherilyn Eiffel's book because a lot of racial terror lynchings either happened on the courthouse lawn or certainly were allowed to happen because of the courthouse. So to me, it would be that powerful symbol of true justice to say, even the judicial system needs to make sure that it does right by all of its citizens. And here are examples of when that did not occur. 
So that's that's to me even lower hanging fruit to making sure it's in the curriculum uh, for schools moving forward is to make sure that those monuments in Alabama are now in the state of Maryland. Well, I think, I mean, we, we, I'll, I'll immediately say we'll be supportive of that. And I imagine a lot of listeners, particularly those in Maryland will be supportive. And I think once those recommendations come out, I hope a lot of groups will jump on and say, absolutely do this. And, um, the state should, should pony up the cash to do it. Um, no matter what. (laughs) So, um, let's see here. So, um, you know, I think we've just scratched the surface of the work that you're doing. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of people who are really interested in the commission, really interested in you. So if people want to dig deeper into this, where would you send them to? Where can they learn more about you? Where can they learn more about the commission if people want to learn like that? So I'll start with the commission. Um, so it's easy for me to just say, just uh, search Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, the, the official website, which is through the state of Maryland, should be one of the first uh, results that come up. It will have all the information about the commission, you know, the list of commissioners and the institutions that we represent. It will always have information for our upcoming meetings. So as a public body, we are open. We adhere to the Open Meetings Act. Any member of the public is uh, welcome to attend our meetings. You know, we give due notice to let people know when the meetings occur. Uh, The materials that we acquire from people who are, you know, volunteering their services or materials uh, to the um, to the uh, commission uh, will be made available once everything has been vetted. So we are committed to being an open commission and making sure everything that we acquire and and all the knowledge and insight that we learn, the people get to learn. So really, the website is the one place uh, that you can uh, go to keep track of the commission and all the work that we're doing. If people want to learn about me. I kind of want to say do the same thing. Just search David Bakula. And I say that not to not to be arrogant, but I kind of lose track of the things that people are chronicling uh, about me, you know, things about me. Um, but I'll, I'll say that I have my own organization, uh, Discover Me, Recover Me. And it is a storytelling organization. I, I started it with my mother uh, officially back in 2017. Uh, we use storytelling as a healing practice. And, and we also use it... Uh, for growth, for personal growth, for organizational growth. Um, as, a, as a public health researcher, storytelling is my thing. Uh, I am looking to further integrate storytelling into public health, both practice and research. So if you go to discovermerecoverme.com, you can learn more about the organization. Uh, again, if you just look me up, David Falconley, you know, you'll, you'll see things about what I do. Uh, the mercenary for change thing is real. I am all over the place. So there's no one good place to figure out who is this guy. So that's why I just say search me and you'll find David, the drummer, David, the storyteller, uh, David, the advocate, David, the agitator. All those things are true. <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would agree with that, because when when I, I was like, we really need to get David on here. Quick search. I found you right away. So you're 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 not, not hard to not hard to find. He is he is truly a mercenary for change. And and I suppose if, if you need change, you can get in, in touch with him as well because he's uh, you're definitely I am a leader for in this. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No. And you're a leader in this, and it and it is so it is so affirming to talk to you, and so good to know that someone like you, who whose heart is truly in the right place, is. Um, is leading this commission in, in such an important commission and the first of its kind in the country. Um, and it's just been, it's been really, really interesting and just a, a pleasure to talk with you before we go. Um, this is a question we ask of all listeners. 
your favorite historic place or site. And for somebody who obviously comes across loves history, I know this will be a tough one. It's tough for everybody we ask. So what is it? It's like choosing your favorite child, but we'll see. Well, I'm, I'm biased and, and, and proud to admit that. So my favorite place is the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum. Um, I grew up in that museum from birth. Uh, it's a place that I consider my second home. I'm comfortable uh, with every crevice of that building. Um, you know, I, I come back very often, you know, usually doing something for my godmother, which of course I'll always say yes to, uh, always happy to check out the new figures. I am committed to its growth as a cultural institution. Um, but if I say anything outside of the National Great Black State Wax Museum, oh man, that is a tough question. I'm such a, uh, a happy prisoner of the moment. So uh, a historical place that meant a lot to me was back in Alabama. Uh, so this was November of, of last year. And we, my mother, uh, my mama, and, and that's one of my cultural mothers and I, we crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So from Selma to Montgomery, uh, we went over to the Selma side and then crossed over to the Montgomery side, you know, just like so many like John Lewis uh, did, uh, man, 60, 60 years ago. And when we got to the Montgomery side of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, we saw a monument to different civil rights leaders uh, at the time. And there was a gentleman who was kind of preserving the grounds. And he talked about his uncle who was a part of Bloody Sunday. And he directed us to the forest right under the bridge by the river. And he told us, and it was confirmed by one of the monuments that lynchings had occurred there. So we couldn't help but to go into that forest just to really take in the ambiance and it just kind of take in the moment of this is where people die simply because of who they were like us and i remember you know my my mama doing kind of like a personal libation just in honor of that moment my mother sang strange fruit by billy holiday and that's about lynching and, and all i could do is just kind of close my eyes and just take in that moment and you know, I, I say I'm a person of faith. I do my best. And if there was any moment that let me know that spirits are real, that was it. <laughs> because I felt something uh, in that moment. So that was a, a very touching moment for me to be in that place. And that's a kind of combination of sites. Again, you know, the bridge was its own moment. You know, the monuments to civil rights leader was its own moment. And then the forest was its own moment. And it really, just in that short walk, and it really is a short walk, so much history was told just in that experience that we had, you know, the past, you know, the later past and the now. And, you know, it really meant something to me to watch some of John Lewis's funeral to see him cross that bridge for the last time. And I can say I did it too. Yeah. Well, um, Anyone who doubts your ability at storytelling um, is 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 now cured of that doubt because that was I I was I was uh, in rap with that and uh, you definitely make the case for the power of place and those layers of history um, and and hopefully um, someday that is the John Lewis Bridge um, absolutely not, not absolutely. the Edmund Pettus right exactly exactly it should be the John Lewis Bridge for sure. So um, this has been a, a, a distinct pleasure. So good to hear from you, to learn more about your work. And again, so glad to know that someone like you with, with such care and concern um, is leading this commission. And we're looking forward to, to reading the report and um, being supportive and uh, engaging people around um, 
the recommendations that um, come out of this work. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.